Uh, this is Tom Lyons presenting the Inside Business Show for the Irish Times. Uh, I'm joined in studio by my colleagues in the business team, Mark Paul and Barry O'Halloran, to discuss this week's top business stories. Uh, Mark, I'll start with you. One of the big, big stories you've been covering lately has been the, the Elvery Sports uh, story. It went into examinership recently. Why did the, the National Asset Management Agency, who it owes so much money to, decide to do this? Um, well, uh, NAMA is uh, is owed a lot of money by um, uh, two gentlemen called John and James Stones and the founders of Elvery Sports. Um, now, they didn't borrow the money to put into Elvery Sports. The money that they borrowed that, that is that is now in the books of NAMA um, is our property debts. Um, and, and they own an awful lot of the stores um, themselves individually and they have other property interests. And, um, and they basically built a, a mini empire for themselves. They're, they're, they're two of the best-known businessmen in uh, in the west of Ireland, very, very close to Enda Kenny. Um, and um, NAMA, uh, they have personal guarantees. Uh, uh, so NAMA has personal guarantees, and and, and it, it decided that uh, the most valuable asset they had to sell was Elvery's. So um, the operating company, effectively, um, and that operates all the stores. Uh, I think fifty, uh, fifty-seven uh, stores uh, nationwide. Um, and they decided to sell that, and they held a process which began last October, um, and it, it culminated in the company that that process. Uh, effectively uh, was scuppered uh, this week um, by Mike Ashley, the billionaire owner of Newcastle United Football Club, because he felt locked out of the process and it was put into examinership then uh, yesterday. And is that good enough for Nama that you know that, that that here they are you know they're you know that they've they've kept you know a billionaire out of the process uh, in order to do to allow a management buyout take place. It's a little bit mystifying as to why um, NAMA didn't just take the business and just put it on the blocks in the first place and sell it to the highest bidder. Now, NAMA obviously has other concerns. Um, there are political concerns. I mean, NAMA has to be seen um, um, to be cognizant of, 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 of saving jobs. Um, and uh, NAMA is also, I think, cognizant of, of, of its relationship with, um, 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 with its debtors. And um, it, 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 it obviously felt that, that, that it could do a deal with the, with the management of, of Elvery's uh, uh, who would know the business well and, and who, who they thought would maintain most of the jobs. Um, uh, Mike Ashley also owns 50% of Heaton's department stores in Ireland and Heaton's had looked at the business back in October or November um, but um, uh, he felt he was locked out of the process, felt he wasn't being allowed to bid and he went very, very public on Sunday evening, Monday morning and um, um, effectively rattled the cage of NAMA, said that uh, uh, he would pay 25% more than anybody else. Um, and that, that, that left NAMA with no choice. I mean, it, 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 it put them in a very, very sticky position publicly. And uh, it, Mike Ashley now would have to be, uh, and Sports Direct, his company that he controls in the UK, would have to be favourites now, I think, to buy Alvarez. And uh, Barry, Elvery's has got 654 staff. Quite a number of them are in a big warehouse down in the Taoiseach's constituency of of, uh, Castle Bar, by coincidence. Uh, Do you think that jobs is one of the big issues here, that that's why NAMA was prepared to sort of do this MBO rather than let, uh, you know, a British entrepreneur come in who who might close some of the stores because he already has a store in in a particular town or that he might see lots of synergies? Well, I don't actually think that it's NAMA's brief to that. That, that strictly speaking, it's not. It's NAMA's brief to protect jobs, but they certainly don't want to be seen to be to to, to be party to, to destroying them, particularly at a time when the economy is still in a very fragile, at the early stages of a very fragile recovery. One of the things that I do think is particularly interesting 
around this is that NAMA is a secured creditor, obviously, and examinership is the one insolvency process where secured creditors are, in theory, at least quite vulnerable because the High Court has ruled that uh, their security can be written down against their will. Now, that's not been challenged in the Supreme Court. So NAMA is actually taking something of a gamble itself by going down the examinership route. Um, I'm still, at the, and because of that, I, I, I'm at a slight loss to see, to, to, to understand why, because I would have thought that an organisation such as NAMA, that to them, the ideal way is, as, as, as Mark pointed out earlier, is really to put something into receivership put it on the block and sell it to the highest bidder and recover as much as is humanly possible for the taxpayer and that being all the, being all the taxpaying citizens of this country. And what do you think, Barry, of, Mar- of Mark's opinion there, which he thinks that, you know, Mike Ashley is a shoe-in now? I mean, you're talking about a billionaire up against a group of management who did come up with 10 million euros, but they're very unlikely to be out- able to outgun him, I would imagine. Yeah, it, it certainly does sound like they, they'd be unlikely to have gone in, but uh, like if you cast your mind back to, to our broadcast of a couple of weeks ago, I think there's, there, we agree that there seems to be a slight bias in examinerships towards existing management. Now, whether that would prove to be the case here um, remains to be seen, and certainly at this stage it, it does appear that Ashley holds a good deal of the aces in this. And the, the other big story this week you've been covering, Barry, relates to Ryanair. You know, it's now the, the happy, clappy airline. And we saw, we, we saw it bring in new rules saying that it's going to change its strategy, that it's, it's instructed staff to smile. Uh, oh, do, you, do you think that it's, it's doing this just to distract us from its results, which, which weren't that great this week? Um, look, well, beneath all the sound and fury about the, the reinvented Ryanair, there's, there's the single solitary fact that they have to grow their business by, by as good as 40% over the next five years. Um, In order to do that, they have to bring in new customers. And in order to bring in new customers, they have to get over the airline's reputation for, I think, uh, for an abrupt culture, if you like. And this is part of that. And the airline has has as good as said that as well. In terms of this week, um, the results certainly impressed shareholders, although I'm at a slight loss to know why, because the airline didn't do anything that was... uh, in any way unexpected we we were we were told it made a loss in the third quarter um it's made it made a, it made a sorry it made a 35 million loss in the the third quarter this was something that we have been told to expect in both september and november it is on target to make a half a billion profit this year if everything falls as it said it will i think a lot of the the investors who I mean, drove the price up to over €7 Euro, uh, last night, which means it's now more valuable than it was before its first profit warning in September. Um, I think a lot of that is, 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 is an overreaction. The airline isn't doing anything that we didn't expect it to do. It's certainly grown passenger numbers. There are certainly positive soundings there. But, you know, a, a lot remains to be seen, really. And I, 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 would, uh, I really would, would say the jury's out until they give us a, full, a view of the full year after March the 31st. And Mark, Michael O'Leary, you know, he's been retiring on and off now for five or six years. Uh, do you think he's ever going to go? And do you think that this, this sort of niceness of, uh, or this uh, gentrification of Ryanair is part of the, the process of him easing his way out of things? Well, you, you could look at it that way, that, that you know, what, what Michael O'Leary may be trying to do here is to decouple his own personality from the personality and, and, and the image of the airline. Um, 20 years of stunts, perhaps. I mean, if, if he pulls this off, this could be his ultimate stunt in, 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 in one way. I mean, it's, it's nothing, nothing with Ryanair and nothing with Michael O'Leary is, uh, is 
random. I mean, this is a calculated decision in order to try and improve uh, the image of the business. Perhaps he's he's, he's preparing the ground uh, to eventually depart. I mean, you know, uh, kind of uh, something close to my own heart. You, you can see when 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 the leader of an organisation who is so indelibly linked with that organisation leaves um, overnight that the organisation can be completely thrown into disarray. And as I said, uh, an item close to my own heart would be Manchester United. You know, uh, Michael O'Leary is to Ryanair what Alex Ferguson was to Manchester United, and that that entire. Uh, organisations then thrown into flux but you know who could replace Michael O'Leary uh, uh, if he were to go I mean I don't know perhaps you know, you know maybe 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 Harold Miller the chief financial officer has missed a boat I don't know um, I wouldn't rule out somebody like Alan Joyce um, um, who's the chief executive of Qantas down in Australia if he could be coaxed back um, you know he's somebody who's got a track record of uh, of of getting into scraps at unions and and uh, you know but then again you know we shouldn't always assume that it's going to be an Irish successor to Michael O'Leary I mean it's an international airline it's a global force um, and uh, it, it could really be anybody from the world of aviation. Barry, you know, Michael Cawley, you know, the deputy chief executive of Ryanair has just stepped down. Uh, he was somebody who would have been tipped to, to replace O'Leary. I mean, can you see him ever being replaced or do you think that whoever it's going to be is just going to have to, you know, become much more of a, 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 a pen pusher and much more in, in the background rather than Michael O'Leary, who is such a, a stuntsman? What I think is interesting here is that Michael O'Leary is, is, is actually starting to talk down discussions of, of retirement and he's, he did that in an interview with Lynn Barber in the Sunday Times a few weeks ago. He seems to be playing it down a little bit more than, than, than he has done in the past. One thing I, I think that we will see is that he, he will be rolling back very much from being the, the public face of the company uh, over the next few months and they're bringing in a new, they, they will be bringing in a, a, a new person to, to do a lot of the, the, the talking for Ryanair to both consumers and, and the media. I actually think that if, if I were to take over, or anyone who does take over from Michael O'Leary, they really would need to be a very different person and put their own stamp on it while sticking like glue to the, the airline's very successful formula of, of, of sitting on costs and managing them as tightly as possible and flying people as cheaply as possible because that's really been the secret of its success. Well, you heard it there, Barry uh, O'Halloran's name is now officially linked <laughs> to, the, to the Michael O'Leary's job. Uh, Barry, the other story you covered this week was you know, much more serious. It related to Element 6 and you were down in the High Court for a big ruling there in relation to its pension fund. Can you just tell us, first of all, just step back and just say, like, what does Element 6 do exactly? Element 6 is part of a multinational group that manufactures um, industrial diamonds which are which have a range of uses across the world and everything from mining to manufacturing this organization in particular they started out in the 60s they employed over a thousand people there's around a third of that there now there's still quite a lot of high-end activity to high-end manufacturing or manufacturing related activity down there although they they moved very central part of its manufacturing out of the, the Shannon operation and back down to South Africa, which is home to one of the group's owners, De Beers, in sometime around 2000, 2001. Um, this, uh, Shannon has a lot of responsibility for distributing their product around the world, and they, I mean, they would have customers in, in, in virtually all developed and uh, emerging markets at this stage. And what happened down in the courts? You know, like, the, like there's, there's been all sorts of allegations flying around. I mean, we finally had a ruling. Yeah, we finally had a ruling. Essentially, the company shut down its defined benefit pension scheme, which is a particularly generous one, and one that kicked in when you were 60 rather than 65. It shut this down in 2001 with the agreement of the, the six trustees. The trustees accepted a final contribution of 37 
million, 23 of which went directly into the defined benefit pot, the rest of which was dispersed uh, into a defined contribution pension, which was a separate scheme. The, the, the deficit in the, in the defined benefit scheme was around 129 million, according to, it depends what calculation you use, we'll stick with 129 million. As a result of this, uh, a number of members saw their benefits severely cut. They sued the trustees for breach of duty, claimed that they were conflicted uh, themselves when they made the decision, and that uh, they hadn't acted reasonably or fairly towards the members, which they should have done. After 14 days of hearings, three weeks, thousands of documents, etc., etc., the Justice Charlton this week said that, in fact, the trustees did act uh, honestly, reasonably, and in good faith, and that they were not to blame for what happened. However, he reserved some very special criticism for the company and the way the company managed the negotiations in the months leading up to the closure of the scheme in November 2011. And he said it was effectively, um, the, the company said, look, 37 million is what you're getting, you take that, or we actually, we don't just close down the pension scheme, we shut down the entire business here in Shannon, and 360 people will lose their jobs. Essentially, what the judge said is, this is not the way to go about uh, negotiating something as delicate as exiting a defined benefit pension scheme. In fact, he said it was a textbook example of how not to do it, and uh, accused the company of a lack of humanity, and a lack of delicacy and emotional intelligence. Well, that's pretty <laughs> serious stuff from a from a high court judge. Even though, I mean, he did ultimately find in the company's favour. Well, he found in the trustees' favour, and I think there's there's a very clear distinction here. The trustees, the trustees are there to act uh, for the benefit of the members of the scheme, and they should really, in a sense, be a buffer between uh, the the beneficiaries and the company should the company want to do anything that would damage the interests of the scheme's beneficiaries because their their primary their only duty is really to the scheme's beneficiaries so uh, the, the company was only linked to this in that a it was the sponsor of the scheme and b it actually indemnified the, the the trustees against any legal action but it was not directly involved in the case at all itself and just finally, Mark, uh, looking forward towards next week. I mean, what do you think are the big stories that people are going to need to look out for? Well, I think it'll be interesting to see if any of the other banks react to AIB's decision this week to um, um, to effectively uh, give the green light to a, a limited number of debt write-downs for distressed mortgage holders. I mean, it's been the big taboo for Irish banks um, to admit in public to writing down debt. You know, Ulster Bank, I saw, come out today and said that um, they don't have a policy of writing down debt, which, of course, doesn't mean that they don't write down debt. It just means they don't have a, for a formulated policy on it. Bank of Ireland under Richie Bowser have been very, very strong on this. But, you know, AIB is the biggest bank in the country, um, and, 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 and if it breaks in the pack in this manner, pressure will come on the other banks, whether it's from our customers or whether it's from the central bank or whether it's from the Department of Finance, to think about how, you know, to think about changing that in, in light of what AIB has done. So that's something I'll keep an eye on to see if there's any reaction to that. So Mark's looking at mortgages. What about you, Barry? What do you think is the story you're going to be looking for? Well, I think the obvious one is is the Anglo case. That's going to trundle on. Um, and, and we, presumably we're like, we can expect something in the way of colourful revelations or colourful copy at the very least from the, the criminal courts. The other thing there is that, uh, the, and given that we were talking about examinerships earlier, the SIAC examinership is due to end this week. So we'll be hopefully seeing a new investor moving in there and uh, uh, at least sort of something north of 200 jobs being saved.
Yeah, that's, that's a big story for one of the country's oldest construction yeah, companies. And I don't think there's anyone who would argue with you either that Anglo-Irish Bank is going to become very, very interesting. Uh, Barry O'Halloran and Mark Paul, uh, thanks for coming on Inside Business. And thanks for joining us for the second half of the Inside Business podcast. In studio is Chris Johns, economic columnist with the Irish Times and former chief investment officer with State Street Global Advisors. Uh, On the line is Suzanne Lynch, the Irish Times European correspondent who is joining us from Frankfurt. Uh, Suzanne, we'll start with you. Uh, Can you take us through, first of all, the European Central Bank's decision today? Yes, first Thursday of the month, and that means only one thing, which is the interest rate decision by the ECB Governing Council. Yes, I was there in Frankfurt today, and um, the Governing Council decided to leave interest rates unchanged. Now, there had been an expectation that perhaps we would see some change this month. Um, Analysts were were fairly divided on it. But in the end, they left left things as they were. Um, Mario Draghi seems to suggest maybe that next month we might see a bit more action um, the bank is, is due to publish forecasts next month, so uh, there might be, um, uh, you know, a more reason, more economic figures that would, would justify intervention. But um, just really the, the, the issue for the ECB has been the, this inflation trend. Uh, inflation in the Eurozone has been falling quite dramatically, and again it fell last month in January to 0.7%. So this is really pushing the ECB to act. And um, now today Mario Draghi was quite strong. He said a few times, you know, inflation, yes, it is going down, but we're not in a deflationary situation here. It's not deflation. And he rejected any comparisons with Japan in the late 90s and early 2000s and said we weren't at that point yet. But at the same time, he said he does expect um, this, this period of low inflation to continue for the next few months. And what's your read of it, Chris? I mean, here here we have the, the ECB, you know, like, the, again, they're sort of in action. Uh, did, it, did this lack of decision, did it, did it surprise you? Yes, and the um, wasn't so much the interest rate decision, because I, like just about everybody else, didn't think that they would act today, but they would seriously trail probably something like a 15 basis point. They haven't got many basis points to cut now, of course, but um, from 25 down to five or ten maybe, was was something that some people expected, but certainly some kind of a forecast or to raise expectations that they would do it next month. And he didn't do any of that. Perhaps more significantly, people thought there might be some action away from interest rates. There's lots of things that they can do. They can mimic the action of other central banks, like the Fed or the Bank of England, and do more uh, quantitative easing, is the ugly phrase that's used in some variety or other. For example, one of the things that they've been doing is buying a lot of government bonds. They've bought our bonds here in Ireland, they've bought Spanish bonds, they've bought other peripheral market bonds as well. But unlike the Fed or the Bank of England, they've done something called sterilization. What they take with one hand, they give away with the other. Um, And there was a hint that maybe the time has come for them to start doing these more unconventional monetary policy moves because they've run out of room with, with interest rates being so low already. So the surprise was that he said absolutely nothing about any of these potential unconventional moves. He didn't suggest that they were about to do them. He didn't trail that March was going to be the month. So the sense that the markets were surprised and the euro strengthened as a result of this, for example, during the course of the press conference, was that he said absolutely nothing to suggest that they were thinking along these lines. Because as Suzanne said, the deflation risk is real. It's certainly bigger than Mr Draghi is admitting to, but then you wouldn't expect him to admit to it. Um, And so I think that there will be some action 
in March. They're going to be forced into it by the inflation numbers. The, the risk of deflation is real. It's something from an economics perspective that you don't want to get into. Because if you do slip into it, it is very, very difficult to get out of, as the Japanese have discovered. They've been stuck in this problem for 20 years. And that's how hard it is to get out. So it's very important not to get into it in the first place. And that's why I think people were surprised, because at 0.7%, as Suzanne said, it's getting very close. And Suzanne, you know, you, when you were in Frankfurt and you were surrounded by other journalists, uh, you know, was that the sense in the room that there was going to be uh, that, that, that there was going to be more, or that we would get more information about what's next? Yes, absolutely. What Chris said there is absolutely right. I mean, one journalist tried to probe Draghi on this, the sterilisation issue, and and he he didn't answer. He he didn't give any clarification on that. So people are looking, you know, for other means, these um, non-standard measures, not just interest rates maybe another liquidity operation, another kind of LTRO. But there is a sense, as Chris is saying there, about, about, um, about quantitative easing, that the ECB is just, just very resistant to this, that we're still a long way from anything that dramatic. Um, and that really even a tiny interest rate cut to, to one of the rates next month or, or, or in, in future months might be even more likely than any other non-standard means, despite the fact that they have very, very little room, as Chris is just saying there, to, to do anything further, really, with interest rates. And Chris, you'd like to come back in again? Yeah, the surprise was the, the, the Bundesbank, the mighty Bundesbank, in the last few days, has given Draghi the open door that he needed to do some of these more unconventional measures because they specifically said that they were open to the idea that these bond purchases could be unsterilized, using that ugly term again. And most of the resistance, we thought was coming from the Germans, because we, we would have thought that the other central bankers around the table, from the likes of Ireland, Spain, Portugal, Greece, would have been pushing for this for some time. And the resistance to these unconventional measures would have been coming from the German quarter. But now that the Bundesbank has said that it is more open to the idea, we were thinking, well, that's it, uh, game on, um, because the people that were stopping it are now saying it's okay. So it was a surprise, and um, I, I, I really don't know why they didn't take this opportunity um, you know, it, it seems that the ECB never misses an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Um, and uh, today, I think, will be written up in, in those terms. Um, nevertheless, I do think that these unconventional measures have to come because of the problems that the European economy, in particular the disinflation problem, is facing. And it's inevitable. As I say, it is surprising that they didn't do something more today, but I think it just delays it. It is inevitable that something more is going to happen. And would you agree there, Suzanne, you think that it's inevitable uh, that something's going to happen as soon as March? Or do you think that this is something that the ECB will again go very slowly, slowly? I mean, it could be a slowly, slowly. As I said, um, March, they are publishing these economic forecasts, which will give a bit more meat. Um, but Mario Draghi was quick to point out today that they have acted. He said, well, we did, you know, we, we did cut interest rates only in November. So it was as if he was reminding people, he was on the defensive, that, um, you know, this accusation that the ECB is too timid, um, that it's reluctant to act, that actually it does act, and um, as it did so in November. Um, so, I mean, all eyes now will be in March, but maybe, maybe, you know, before May. I mean, we've got this other thing that's happening with the ECB, obviously, in, in terms of... Um, their, their supervisory role that they're taking over now. Um, you've got the asset quality reviews of banks. So that's a whole other wing of this ECB that's being ramped up now and that's going to be taking, you know, a lot of focus, I suppose, um, uh, this year. 
Um, so uh, that'll be something else we'll be watching, particularly in Ireland um, and and other kind of tr- you know peripheral nations over the next few months. And Suzanne, you picked out a, another interesting angle from the meeting in relation to last year's promissory note deal here in Ireland. Can you take us through exactly what you discovered? Yeah, I mean, this is one thing about the ECB press conference every month. Okay, on, on one level, it's about the, the interest rates and it, its role as a central bank. But on the other, on the other hand, the ECB is playing a central role as one of the troika, and it's its active involvement in programs um, in the in the various bailout countries. Um, and even though the Irish program has now finished, um, the ECB still has to. Um, rubber stamp the promissory note deal that was done last year. We're now approaching exactly a year when that was when that was agreed. At the time, the ECB publicly uh, said they took note of the deal, uh, even though privately they, they supported it. But at the time, they also said that um, they would have to return to it to review it to see if it was in breach of its uh, monitoring financing rules. Um, in particular, Germany had an issue, had a question mark over over the arrangement which saw the permissory notes that had been used to recapitalise Anglo-Irish banks swapped with long-term government bonds. Um, and Germany in particular had question marks over whether that was a form of monetary financing by, by the Irish Central Bank, and it was to come back, come back to the issue. Um, now, it looks like um, the Governing Council um, will discuss this issue within the next six weeks or so by the end of March is likely and Mario Draghi I posed a question to him um, at the press conference and Mario Draghi confirmed that they were gathering uh, information on this and the Central Bank of Ireland um, declined to comment on it but um, it is under the microscope and it will be looked at and um, I suppose Ireland will be hoping there will be no uh, question marks asked about the deal at this stage. And Chris I mean you know at this stage a year on they can look at it under a microscope all they like I mean do you yeah. not think it's very unlikely that they'll do anything? It has to be very unlikely. The, the background has changed dramatically since the question was first raised. And when, we, when they first raised it a year ago, we assumed, I think rightly, that it was a rubber stamping exercise. The ECB has to look at things like this in order to be seen to be doing the right thing. And I suspect that that's all that's happening. If somebody is raising an objection to it, if somebody does think it's monetary financing, and arguably it is, to be honest, um, then how you unpick that deal is, is, is a mind-boggling concept. The mood music has changed, however, because as I said, in a different context, the Germans are getting a little bit more relaxed about these sorts of things. The Germans have even said that um, bailing out the senior bondholders was the wrong thing to do. Um, the Troika are talking about extending Greek loans for up to 50 years now and lowering the interest rate. So... The mood music behind all the scenes is more relaxed. Um, I would be astonished if somebody is going to try and play hardball with this deal. And would you see, Chris, that you know, you've know you talked about you know that there's sort of a sense that maybe they might try and be a little bit more unconventional, I try and do, come up with new ideas. Uh, do you think that we're going to see any new ideas you know, in terms of how Europe is dealing with Ireland and whether we, will we ever get a better deal? We deserve one. I'm firmly of that view because I think that we were very hard done by when, in that time-honoured phrase, we took one for the team with the bailing out of the bondholders. And I do think that some imaginative proposal is needed for further debt relief. The thing that the government talks about most often is some kind of retrospective recapitalization of the banks. And so far, the various representatives of the Troika have resisted that idea. That seems to be our best hope. But there are other ways of doing this if you want it to be more imaginative. Um, and I think that we have a strong 
financial and economic case because as the Bundesbank itself has said, it was the wrong thing to do to bail out the senior bondholders. It was done in a moment of panic. Um, perhaps it is with hindsight that they are admitting this now, although serious people in this country and elsewhere said it was the wrong thing. I don't think the IMF, for example, ever wanted it to happen. Um, so I think that from, from a strict financial and economic perspective, we are justified in asking effectively for some of our money back. Um, and I also think there's an ethical almost uh, issue associated with this. Is that, and, and as I say, we took one for the team. This was done. We were forced to do something for the greater good. That It's now being deemed widely by a lot of the players that, um, yeah, we did that, and perhaps it wasn't necessary. Perhaps it wasn't even the right thing to do. And sometimes, you know, um, it's right to fess up to your mistakes. I think that um, the role of central banking is changing dramatically uh, through the financial crisis. Central banks used to be these narrow technocratic institutions that didn't have a huge impact beyond interest rates and mortgage rates and things like that on people's lives. They're now front and centre in an awful lot of what goes on in our economies. And I think that uh, the ECB's credibility would actually be enhanced if it fessed up and said, look, we messed that up and it's time to do something about it. And would you oh, just, yes. Sorry, just to add to that, um, another argument um, from Ireland's point of view is that at the moment, um, at the moment Europe is discussing new rules that will allow for the bail-in and bondholders in the future. So there's a very strong argument here that Ireland wasn't permitted to do so by the ECB, we believe, um, and yet and they're now going to legislate for, for, that, for that exact thing to be allowed to happen. So, um, I mean, Michael Noonan has written this in a letter to the European Parliament who are, who are doing a, a kind of an inquiry into Troika's activities and has made this point that the, that the very option that's now been discussed um, as the model for future bailouts was not available to Ireland and, and simply that, that wasn't fair. And it wasn't that our great misfortune, Chris, you know, that we were the first to really, you know, hit the skids. Yeah. I mean, if it was happening now, um, we wouldn't be bailing out the senior bondholders. There's no doubt about that at all. Um, if, if somebody else uh, needs a program, and there's a lot of people who still think that you know Spain could need a program like ours at some point in the future. There's a lot of people still worried about Italy. It won't take many slips for the Troika to be in action again with another country. But you can be absolutely sure that if that does happen, if and when it comes about that there is another pro bailout program for another country, it won't involve the um, bailing out of senior bondholders. Well, look, uh, I don't think there's anyone, Chris, who's going to d disagree with you that Ireland certainly took one for the team. Whether we'll ever get one back from the team is another matter. Chris Johns, economic columnist with the Irish Times, and Suzanne Lynch, uh, European correspondent, uh, thanks for coming on the programme. And that's it for this week's Inside Business Show. The show was produced by Sinead O'Shea, and engineer was Rob O'Sullivan, and the presenter was myself, Tom Lyons. <laughs>